What's up, guys? Roy here, and you are listening to the Balance Mill Podcast Series. Today's episode will be a dad talk. The dad I have today is a man named Jay Prock. He is not only a rad dad of four kids, he's also a half Ironman marathon runner, or finisher, I'm going to say finisher. He runs multiple companies, but he focuses on his family's company that's been here in Hampton Roads for over 30 years called Tidewater Staffing. I'm sure we're going to have a lot to talk about. So listen and enjoy. Hey, Jay. Hey, Roy. You are on my first podcast with two microphones. How's it feel? Pretty stoked. I'm, uh, you know, always a tinker. Excited to uh, have contributed in, in a small way. You did contribute. You, you helped us find a place to hold the microphone. And uh, yeah, it works pretty well. I'm proud of you. Oh, I'm proud of us, man. Small price to pay for my favorite beverage. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the tradition on the Dad Talk is we share your favorite beverage. Tell everybody what we're drinking. Oh, this is uh, the beer by which I judge all other beers. This oh, wow. is the Legend Brown Ale. Mm. So I'm always a big fan of a of a brown ale, even if it's a hot summer day. I know some people are, uh, you know, opposed to drinking some of the darker ones on uh, on a hot day, but I don't. It doesn't bother me at all. I like the malts. I like the uh, memories that it brings back, um, and it's good for uh, yeah, hot weather, cold weather. I like that you said memories. I drink, my drink of choice are all based on memories. I was talking about that the other day. My favorite drink is Presidente. Uh-huh. It's a really crappy uh, Dominican beer. <laughs> But, Which brings me nothing but uh, memories of, of cheap beer at, yeah. uh, at resorts and stuff that they give you in the tiny little paper cups. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, we went to my wife's, um, her mom got remarried, and they were in the Virgin Islands, and everywhere had Presidente. But specifically, the first day at the beach, there was a swim-up bar barge. And, all the guys, and, I, and I got to swim up to it, which I'd never done before in my life. I thought that was awesome. And then all I had was Presidente. So I got drunk on Presidente, floating in a barge in a bay watching sea turtles swim by. So when I drink Presidente, that's what I think of. Thinking of a a tiny slice of heaven, huh? Tiny slice of heaven. So yeah, (laughs) I can't just, yeah, I choose uh, even like the food I like to eat. Um, All the beers that I drink are based off of memories, really. Yeah. Or like it takes me somewhere. Like Sweetwater is Georgia baby. Yeah, so that's why I drink Pacifico that to Mexico and oh, uh, Pacifico. Mm-hmm. Oh man. What's the rum from um Nicaragua? Flor de Cana. That's I've a great never one. Had that. You know what else? I just had a really uh yesterday was my birthday, by the way. Yeah, so, happy birthday. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. How old are you? Um 35 35 jeez i'll so be birthday. 40 i'll be 40 in june <laughs> i'll leave that one alone yeah, <laughs> so anyway rum you're talking about- oh <laughs> talking about my birthday so uh last night we did dinner at bird and baldwin fancy steakhouse in Norfolk. Oh, okay. oh man it was so cool good super high quality stuff um but uh a drink that i've been into recently if we get you know, to a fancy place or if I see it on a menu, um, is Mezcal. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh smoky tequila, mm-hmm. right? Basically. So they had a Mezcal drink and, uh, man, it's so funny. It makes Christina's blood curdle. She can't even smell it mm-hmm. without getting grossed out. <laughs> oh man. But that's awesome. I love Mezcal. 
What does Mezcal remind you of? Um, nothing. That, nothing. <laughs> I just love it because Black of the taste. Mezcal. But it's like... Um, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> you know, there goes the whole story of everything. <laughs> no, Pacifico was the first Mexican beer I tried, so it reminds me of my 20s, which is funny because I didn't drink until my 20s. Ah, so I missed all. I tell people all the time that I missed out on the Natty Light phase, because <laughs> like Natty Light, Bud Light, all those beers I can't drink because I was like older and never got into that. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Pacifico is the first Mexican beer I drank. But uh, Mezcal is good. Mezcal is a very, it's very much a uh, crowd splitter. Mm. It's that smokiness. It's like love um, it or hate it. Mm-hmm. To me, it tastes like beef jerky that was soaked in alcohol. Mm, but I had that's a, a really good way to put it. I can't yeah. disagree with that. But like, there was a time when breweries were making smoked beers, mm-hmm. and those were disgusting. Like, <laughs> I can't taste those. It tasted like, like there was a smoked stout, and it tasted like a chocolate covered like, um, it, it it tasted like chocolate covered beef jerky, which kind of sounds like it's gonna be delicious, but like imagine like the beef jerky had turned or something. Candied bacon in the mimosas or in the um, bloody marys at hair of the dog mm. that's what that makes me think of nice mm. but hey we're, we're not here to talk about drinks right no it's fine we could talk about one more because i'm gonna tell you that you should try a mezcal <laughs> so i've had a mezcal old-fashioned Ooh. which was really good and the last thing i'll talk about is i drink greyhounds rather than mimosas or bloody marys in the morning that's uh, vodka grape and juice. grapefruit juice. Grape juice and vodka. And it reminds me of, because uh, it reminds me of the first, might have been the first or second time that I moved, he- that I visited here in Virginia Beach with Carly. Um, we went to Doc Taylor's. Doc Taylor's. And I, I didn't really want to drink a mimosa. And I was like, what's a Greyhound? And I drank the Greyhound and I loved it. So it always reminds me of brunch on the summertime and like the first time coming here lunch brunch summertime at doc t's like yeah that, that you could sum that up with uh a, a virginia beach in a nutshell right and i'll go i'll go even deeper because now you're on this tangent don't worry we have, we have plenty of time <laughs> i go to big sam's because it reminds me of every like divey restaurant that you would ever see in a movie from a beach town yeah that's what it reminds me of and i when i was a kid chalkboard menus yeah the grill going, the mm-hmm. guys yelling. Oh, dude, I love that you can see the, the grill and all the guys cooking. Yep. Like, I, I just love that. Just right as you walk old, in. Yeah, and a bunch of old dirt bags just sitting there drinking you know, Tecate. That's right. Dude, that's so funny. You said yeah. that's exactly where I was going with that. Because you can walk in there and you can buy a, bit, a tall boy Tecate yeah. uh-huh. and uh, sit and wait for your table. Yeah, well, but like, at least two in the good old days. I ain't been there since Corona. I take, I take uh, the kid. I try to take the kid every other Sunday. We go to Big Sam's for breakfast. So you sit outside right now. Okay. And, well, they have tables inside, but if you don't get there right at 8 o'clock when they open, there's usually, you're going to have well, to shit, sit Shit, that ain't any different than any other weekend, is I it? Know, right? <laughs> it's a hopping place, yeah, man. Yeah, but when I was a kid, so it's pretty funny that I live by the beach, because when I was a kid, I used to obsess about the beach. I live in, because I'm from but Atlanta. But growing up in Georgia. Atlanta, yeah, Georgia, yeah. landlocked country, <laughs> you know, areas, and... I would wear Fried like chicken and outcast. Yep. Outcast. Great band, by the way. Love those you, guys. Oh my gosh. They're from the town I grew up in. Well, no I kidding. in Decatur. Yeah. They talk about Hetland and DeLo in a, um, in a, one of their, I forget what song it is. 
Hetland and Delo, and it's near where I grew up. <laughs> yeah, I grew up. Uh, I liked our friend, our mutual friend Jim. I tell I told him the other day that I lived hood adjacent. Because <laughs> that's one of those words. What up, Jim adjacent. Oliver? <laughs> yeah, you go. You know, everybody wants to be water adjacent here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was, he was trying to tell me where I grew up, and I was like, it wasn't. I was in the neighborhood right next to it. But anyway. Where were we going with that? So yeah, I was I was focused. I love the beach. I saw every surf movie, even the the silly ones with what's their names the the sixty surf movies. It always had the the main the dude and the woman, like Beach Blanket Bingo or stuff like that. Uh, um, I can't even think of <laughs> maybe uh, a net Funicello. No, but anyway, so I'd watch all of those. I watched North Shore. I watched um. What other ones? Anything that had to do with California or the beach or the ocean, I watch. I set my clock to California time. <laughs> so anyway, so I, I was. It's just funny that I live here by the beach. But and, yeah, when I go to Big Sam's, it's like there's that part of me that's like, oh yeah, this is why I live here. Because you know, you drive if you drive a certain way, you can go over the Rudy Inlet. Absolutely. And then you go right there, and there's the dock. You know, all the boats are docked up there, and you can see the inlet. And it's like, yes, like this is this is dope. It's a beach town. Yeah. So yeah, that's why I go to Big it's right, Sam. It's right at the heart too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. First Street. You Big Sam's so much better. You get the than fiercest us. competition for the world's worst waves. You know, we won that one year from Surfer Magazine, right? Yeah. Didn't he say that? Somebody <laughs> said that Virginia Beach is in a surf spot. It's a uh, liquor store. <laughs> There's been all kinds of insults over the years to the area, man, with the uh, surf culture and stuff. Even even down to the bumper sticker. I know. Uh, VB has no waves has or Virginia no waves. has no waves. But, but there's something about that that's pretty awesome to live at a place that's, like, infamous. Well, true that. And, um, you know, what's funny is uh, Kelly Slater came from Cocoa Beach. He no did. waves there either. No waves there either. <laughs> I mean, that's what they say. I'm convinced it's a conspiracy. What keep everybody out from all of our sweet surf breaks that were just really, really good as far as locals go at keeping it a secret. Yeah. So how, so you think it's a conspiracy? <laughs> so so we're, I'm glad that we're talking about this because it's really it's fun because one, how can it be a conspiracy? Like they literally have changed the sandbars. So you just think people are like trying to make sure that people know it's crappy here, so we're not we don't become huntington beach that would i think that's a yeah, yeah. Surf, a possibility surf culture is hilariously amazing to me <laughs> i worked at that restaurant seeks at the oceanfront yeah and i remember i helped actually helped start that place I worked there for like three and a half years three years two three i don't anyway but i remember like being that close to the first street jetty and it became the place where everybody, all the surfers would come. Everybody would come because at the time there was no place to get pokey in Virginia Beach. So these surfers from all over the world want pokey. They want acai bowls. They want good coffee. So all the surfers would come in. But what was so funny is that this was a cool spot, by the way. I remember. Yeah. I remember that spot. The, the like the weird mismatched furniture yeah. and the art mm-hmm. on the wall and stuff. I, it. it not, never really uh, 100% my scene, for sure, but I've definitely dropped in there and gotten some really... The fish was always awesome. The, yeah. The, the raw fish was always really good. Yeah, pokey. shout out to the guy, K-L-E-E. He was the head chef there. He's the he's the madman, the he magician. He was the madman there, but yeah, he's the recipes and stuff come from him mm. and how he did it, so yeah. But it was a weird place because it was like pokey, acai bowls, and coffee. That's what we served. Yeah. 
but but it, you know so you know i got to see the culture when the ecse was in town all these other surfers would be in here and they would all show up and then the middle school girls would come to take pictures <laughs> of them and that was always frustrating and they'd order waters but anyway <laughs> but the surf culture here in virginia beach is hilarious because people would come and talk to me and it didn't sound like I didn't expect to hear what I heard. Like they talk, Hey man, what's up? When I heard your pokey's really awesome, bro. And just like talk like that when like we're here in Virginia and I expect more of a little twang. <laughs> and it's just so funny because it's like, where do these guys get these you, accents? From? You ever get caught giving one of them a yes, sir. And uh, catching a funny look. No, I didn't. Mm. Oh man. But they talk, hey man, I, uh, it's like we're it's like we're listening. It just was so it's so funny to to hear that. But then you get like the pongo surfers that come in with the twang. It's just so funny. This this town is awesome. It's so like it's a small little thing surrounded by you know country. Well, and a lot of cool topography in the state of Virginia too. I mean, you can mm-hmm. run into just about anybody in the lineup. You know, I, I'll, yeah, I'll say two two quick thoughts. Right on that would be one is surfing in general and a lot of sports. When you find a passion or something mm-hmm. that you're into, you can come from a lot of different places. But when you're there to appreciate something for all uh, a reason that those uh, around you are doing the same, you know, you kind of get to speak a common language. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, you know when you're out in the wa- you know, whether you're out in the waves or on the mountain or um, you know jumping out of aircraft, uh, it's all y'all get to sing the same tune for what little bit of time you get to share. Yeah. So it's awesome. I think there's a lot of parallels there too. You know, kind of what weaves us together as, uh, as dads, mm-hmm. you know, if you're talking about dad podcast or, uh, you know, sharing experiences in that regard or, uh, you know, business starting or being a part of the foundation of an organization and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's really, really interesting. And, you know, really only the people who have been there sat in that seat for a little bit, or at least, very very intimately close with someone who did are going to be able to appreciate that the way that you do you know like i can't pour a good espresso for example mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> just as uh you know there's skill sets that others have that you know would be cool to understand better so and people do get protective of things like that mm. you know doing it the right way like yeah uh yeah you know you have the quintessential dude that's like protecting everyone in the lineup making sure people are getting their waves and stopping other people from getting them you know, people get very protective of that. Same thing with like beer and being a barista and espresso. You want to like, you know, you know something that other people don't. So there's like a, there's something that you want to protect. Dude. And how funny is it? That it comes full circle because my thoughts just went to, uh, this lady that was, uh, helping Mila down helping. And I'm putting mm-hmm. air quotes here cause we're on radio. <laughs> <laughs> um, she was, you know, doing her best to, better the situation as she saw it. But Milo was like pretending to be stuck on the top of this jungle gym. Right. Mm-hmm. And so this lady comes over and is like trying to help Milo out and whatever. And I'm watching from the bench, just, just, just laughing so hard. Like this lady has no idea. Like Milo was totally getting one over on her, but it felt to me like she was either worried about how I was parenting or like talking about projecting others, like expectations onto, you know, mm-hmm. watching out for people in the lineup or whatever else. Like, it's um i think the most per- the realm um of people's lives where they are most interesting about that is parenting right and like 
I got um, flashes of protectionism, like, right? Mm -hmm. Like, do I say something to this lady? Uh, Is it worth the uh, effort, social embarrassment, whatever, on both ends of the spectrum? Yeah. Or, uh, and what I ended up deciding to do is just just let it play out, right? And it was fine, (laughs) you know? But uh, she could, you could tell she was like kind of panicking, looking around, like, where are their parents? And, and Milo, I mean, Milo could have easily jumped off of this thing and been fine. She's just pretending, um, or he, yeah. she's pretending. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Mila. So Mila's number two. Riley's Riley's firstborn. Riley, Mila, Kai, and Paige. So, so those are the kids. four. That's right. Yeah, man. The thought of having four kids makes me start sweating. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. That's how you know you're a real parent too. You, you again, about, you've been there. You know. People go, how could you not like? How could you not want more? You know, they. But it's like, I mean, it's a scary thought to think about four of mine running around. He runs around, and you feel just crazy. Like last night when they, he didn't sleep well, so we didn't sleep well. Mm-hmm. But then I think about what if there's four that aren't sleeping well. <laughs> All it takes is two to keep you up all night long. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, oh my gosh, I just can't. But anyway, so yeah, you have four kids. That's awesome. Um, now, do they all have the same kind of birth story? Is it different? I, I know that you did. Did you, I know that some of your kids are, or were they all natural, or did you have hospital natural births? All of our kids were born naturally. Wow. Um, Christina is just an just absolutely awesome at having babies. <laughs> <laughs> Hence why you she's have a, four. <laughs> she's a, a wonderful human being, um, you know, and somebody whom I admire um, exponentially. Um, and yeah, each of our uh, kids were born naturally. She wanted to do it that way if she absolutely could. And, um, you know, the, ultra quick summary is um riley was at depaul Mila was at depaul but had shoulder dystocia and spent five weeks or five um days in the NICU. kai uh was then risked out of a midwifery center mm-hmm. so we went to where we went to home births um so kai and Paige were both born at home so um you know we just incredibly lucky with each of their birth stories um and had really good help from really good people at the right times um christina paid her dues with um her diet and her discipline um you know uh we think that played a big hand in it um why, why natural was there a specific reason why she wanted natural or, or is it just, that's just, she just wanted to do it that way. I think the right answer, you know, is kind of always something along the lines of, well, you've got to do you, you've got to, um, you got to know what's right for you. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and for anybody that's out there that knows me, um, to know I have, I have a tendency to get pretty opinionated. Oh, what? No. <laughs> no, Jay. And, um, you know, this is one that um, I think there's just an overwhelming amount of evidence 
that there's an enormous amount of health benefits to being able, if you can, mm-hmm. it's medically possible that the best plan for mom and baby, again, if possible, if feasible, mm-hmm. um, if they're both healthy enough to pull it off and there's no weird complications is to do it naturally. Um, you know, you could have a whole season of podcasts on, and they're, I'm actually, I think they're out there. Yeah, they are. <laughs> Shout out to any of those that are, yeah. <laughs> that want to plug. Right. Um, but, uh, for me, the, the evidence was just overwhelming that if we could pull it off this, our, our first choice was natural birth, no drugs, no intervention, if at all possible, um, as much natural movement and, you know, help with what you could do, you know, um, physically and nutritionally, but without, you know, hopefully any foreign, um, any intervention chemically mm-hmm. or, or otherwise. So, um, that, and then going immediately and again within the health and expectations of the health of the child and the mother, uh, to breastfeeding, mm-hmm. um, to make sure that, you know, it just, so I've been doing a lot of reading recently on like, uh, anthropology, mm-hmm. I'm reading this book by Daniel Lieberman kind of about like where humans as a species come from and stuff. And, um, reading a lot about running and, um, you know, how does all this tie into childbirth, right? Well, basically, I'm a f- pretty firm believer in that evolutionarily we're at a very, very small point in time at which we can conceive, you know, a lifetime, call it 100 years if you're incredibly lucky, right? Life expectations more like 70 or 80, 75, mm-hmm. 80. Um, if you're a woman, you live, you live longer, so. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> my point is I think that we're – evolutionarily designed to do certain things and to do certain things well. And that, um, medical intervention is a really great thing. Certainly, um, helps all kinds of people all the time, but, um, we've been having natural births for millions and years. It's, um, hard. It was very, very hard for me to see benefit in medical interventions and, it was Christina's ideas, right? I just kind of supported mm-hmm. uh, the thought process. And when I did my own, you know, kind of deep dive into this stuff, it was so outweighed heavily um, that it just wasn't a question for me anymore, you know? So you didn't come from a natural birth background. You just, because Christina felt strongly about it, you were going to back her up. But then you researched yourself and then well right and i'll tell you something else that was really interesting was watching my sister go through a couple of um very challenging births that yeah Mm -hmm. um that there was a significant amount of intervention Mm -hmm. my own birth story there was um a significant amount of uh intervention Mm -hmm. um you know uh epidural and stuff and um it just changes the game you know it changes a lot of the uh, hormonal balance and things that both the baby and the mother experience. Mm. And that's not opinion. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, <laughs> it is. <isn't. laughs> so, uh, yeah, like I said, the evidence was just overwhelming that the better way to go for us. And, you know, my belief is, um, you know, uh, that the right way to go is natural if you can do it. Uh, you know, C-section or, or drugs, if you need them, absolutely. Medical science is absolutely there mm-hmm. to, to save and to help. But that this obsession with people going to have like scheduled C-sections and um, it, it just, you know, I don't really consider myself like a <laughs> hard lefty or out there kind of personality. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like this is, to me, this is strictly as close as you can get to science, right? Medicine's got a lot of variables, but. Yeah, I really, I'm really glad that you're, you're 
you've put it into words the way you did because well first i mean i've always wanted i've always wanted to have a natural birth you know i wanted my child to come out naturally for a lot of the same reasons that you did you know but also for me i wanted natural um because i saw how sometimes with medicine it just they just blanket the field you know one thing works one way and it's good so then everybody does it for example i had my tonsils taken out in the 80s now what was happening is that some people really did need their tonsils taken out but what became what i think what you began to see is this pattern of of oh this kid has a tickle in his throat or a sore throat let's just take his tonsils out so then every kid was getting his tonsils taken out. i mean there's research to back this up i've done it the evidence myself but like what i saw in a couple of my friends hospital births was there was it was just it was one it was out of their control immediately because the doctor you know was there and, and i think in a lot of ways they need to be in control i'm not saying that doctors are stupid by any means we need the doctors but it became this business just get them in get them out get them in get them out get them in get them out and it was like the longer they're in labor the longer they're in there the more problems there's going to be and that's what's fed to them and there was like this also majesty that was taken out of birds which i think that we don't you don't get it as much in the hospital and i wanted that i wanted a moment i wanted this thing that i'm sitting there with my wife doing something that was just inherent or innate innate in her body to just do and just be in that moment where we were there and we had the protection we needed the support we needed everything but just <clears throat> that moment that awe-inspiring moment so i wanted that and, uh, well and you know what's funny and and part of uh you know, my, my homework for the interview, right, was uh, doing my own uh, doing my own birth story and figuring that out. Well, tell me about that. Well, that, that in itself is really, really a, a cool experience. But part of that learning was, uh, you know, dad and his generation was one in which that, like, dudes weren't really, not only were they not expected in the birth room, but it was almost like you were excused. Like, go have a cigarette, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so he wasn't super comfortable even being in the um the birthing room um but yeah so so my birth story mm -hmm. from the top basically um um so you hear bits and pieces of things you know over the like years growing up yeah right yeah, yeah. um yeah I, I knew a couple of basics um yeah i've always known a few really cool things um you know, mom wasn't supposed to have kids in the first place. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Um, so they always, you know, jokingly referred to me as the, uh, the miracle baby. Right. Wow. Well, and 13 months later I got, got, we, we had my sister, um, you know, and then four years later we had Nolan. Turns out, um, got some more specifics, you know, as time goes on and, um, you know, uh, mom had a fallopian tube baby, right. Mm -hmm. um and had to abort um they don't tell you that when you're six seven eight years old right but um so i had to do a, a little bit of asking um and 
so once they found out that that wasn't you know, that, that that was what was going down uh they checked out the second fallopian tube and the second fallopian tube was was blocked there was some sort of blockage so basically the doctor said look we can try another surgery and they did um, but the chances are really low that you're gonna have babies again and sure enough the surgery didn't work either so basically doc said you know you're done um you know we tried everything that we could and i'm sorry um so you know uh, and I, actually i don't know the time between when she heard that news and when she actually became pregnant again, but sometime thereafter, and I don't think it was very long, like probably within a year, um, they got pregnant with the miracle baby. Yeah. <laughs> You're surely right. Nice. Um, pretty cool. Uh, and they're, you know, kind of over the moon excited, but, um, part of what, um, you know, they kind of walked into this stuff knowing was the probability of, you know, um, defects or something was going to be a little bit higher. Well, they got a, uh, preliminary test and actually this is news that, you know, I hadn't heard or maybe had heard in maybe coded ways, um, over the years, but had not, uh, at least to my recollection, had not heard it in its complete, um, form until literally as I pulled in your driveway and caught Carly in the driveway <laughs> and got a second phone call from yeah. mom saying, Hey, I forgot something. She said, your birth story is pretty cool. You know, like whatever. And had labor started labor while she was, um, moving furniture and stuff in and out of the, uh, apartment where they were at in Willoughby. And they were sliding over to the park, the, the house that I grew up in Norfolk, 9630 Hammett Parkway. I still remember that place really cool stuff had a great childhood by the way love my parents just worth noting um and so so she started labor there um and um you know hey your birth story is great and everything dad brought uh mickey d's on the way he couldn't uh (laughs) apparently things are getting uh where they were moving along but uh you know i guess not fast enough to get a little uh get a yeah you need to get a big mac (laughs) um but she said, one of the things that was really interesting that your dad told me that I'd forgotten about when I was telling you the story was that um, very shortly after they'd gotten pregnant, they did a preliminary test um, that showed that I had a very high probability of getting spina, bif- spina bifida. Wow. Or had, had spina bifida. Um, and I still, I, I would need to go and do the research, but um, not exactly sure what that means other than, you know, it's kind of a crippling kind of deal. Like, and yeah. she alluded to the fact that, you know, that was pretty well an abort sentence for that day and age. You know, it was a good reason not to have a baby. Um, but they obviously stuck it out and said, you know, we were going to put it in his hands, whatever they had in the plan they were going to roll with. And then there was a second test that was further down the line, some fancy name that actually Carly knew that I tried to repeat, but <laughs> slaughtered um, <laughs> a, okay. amino insotensis, some whatever but she probably goes oh you mean blah blah blah, blah exactly blah, blah, blah. exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that second test showed that i didn't have a spina bifida uh, and so here i am today um so glad they did the second test right yeah well, we, well and you know second test or not they were going through with it anyway you know so really the oh, second yeah. test was going to really? just show how bad if there was I, I guess maybe to the degree of uh potential disability Man. um but they were willing to go through with it anyway and uh you know so uh Maybe the first fatherhood tip of the cap goes to the old man and uh, and my mom, right, for being yeah. willing to stick it out. You know, you think you got it tough when uh, 
and not you specifically, but you in general, like any of us think that we have yeah. it tough when uh, you're getting up at two, three, four AM to do what you gotta do, right? Like imagine being on that kind of schedule all day, every day. You know, a child that has like, you know, real needs. Mm-hmm. Um that just uh that's a tough existence, right? It's such a I talk about this a couple times before, but how like with birth or with life you're literally walking this fine line between order and chaos. And all it takes is the wind to just blow just a little bit in the wrong direction. And before you know it, it's just everything. Yeah, I feel sometimes like in the classroom, I feel it. You see it in births. I mean, it's just a thing. Sometimes you hold the front toggles too long and end up with a face full of <laughs> rock hard cement water and spend seven days in the intensive care unit Is trying to tell your parents reference that we'll get to in a little bit <laughs> shit i'll tell you that story right now that's a fun one that's a really fun one and it's really cool because it segues right again to my parents which is fun yeah so one of my hobbies for a long time was skydiving um, i've got about 1100 skydives i hold two route two state records toot that horn jay yeah well you know it's part of the problem because um doing something for long enough and thinking that you're really really sweet at it um will inevitably humble you and it did um i was down at a uh, contest in rayford north carolina warming up to um fly fast you know and the idea is that under a fully operational canopy um, after the skydive is over, um, you dive the canopy down at the ground, generate a ton of speed. It's super fun. The adrenaline just through the roof. You pull out of the dive and you have all this full, this downward motion that you can transfer into forward motion because the shape of the wing mm-hmm. and the type of turn and all these other like, uh, very just super fun, <laughs> super, super fun, um, variables, but, um, you plane out and navigate a course and you get points for speed, accuracy, and, um, and distance. And, uh, so I was warming up and yeah, the hubris kicked in. I just felt really, really good in the turn, held the turn too long and smashed in the water Ugh. going about 55 miles an hour. Um, Jeez. it was brutal, but luckily because it was a contest and because I had professionals watching, um, they were, fast on the uh on the ambulance so they got the got me in the ambulance um on the way to the hospital uh you might have to edit this out for the pg version it's fine um on the way to the hospital i was holding the hand of a male nurse um and he and i were joking about you know hope the nurses at the hospital look better than you and this kind of stuff like (laughs) (laughs) he's a big burly guy you know but super good at his job um and they were just really, really cool, um, except that I had this really horrifying image of the look in this guy's face at a certain part of the way into the, to the trip, and he, and he looks down, and he was like, oh, God, and I was like, what? And he was like, oh, you're, don't worry about it. You know, kind of like trying to play it off, but he'd been caught. Yeah. I said, I just shit myself, didn't I? He said, <laughs> he said you sure did. <laughs> and what I know... Um, to be true through you know graphic novels and stuff was that that's the first part in your body thinking that you're dying oh wow um, so, so that just sent you into a kind of like a like holy cow um you know this really this is really bad <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um so um 
got to the hospital, obviously, uh, you know, shortly thereafter blacked out, um, got to the hospital, but, you know, um, they did their tests, um, Dr. Margaret, uh, fingers of God, uh, worked her magic. Um, I had all internal injuries and a single broken bone, but I tore my spleen, my colon, my superior mesenteric artery. Um, you know, had a huge scar as if it was a C-section, but turned uh-huh. that scar vertical. Yeah. Right. So it goes from, you know, my sternum down to about my, uh, just above my pubic area. And, um, so 11 staples and God knows how many stitches, um, and five days in the ICU, uh, no, three days in the ICU, f- seven total days in the hospital. But, um, you know, got lucky enough to, to have come out, come out alive. Uh, but the kicker, uh, and how all this kind of ties into mom and dad and the, uh, parenting thing was literally seven days prior to my accident. Mm-hmm. We'd found out that she was about five or six weeks pregnant. First, second, third, fourth. With Riley. The first? The first. Wow. So I'm, uh, I'm on the table, right? I'm intubated. I'm in the transfer between the ICU and, um, the main room, right? So basically at this point, everybody around me is relatively certain I'm going to live, mm-hmm. you know, there's the high probability that, you know, things it's, it's okay. The worst, the, the darkness should have passed by now. I wasn't really aware of that. And I was still on allotted, you know, like kind of tap mm-hmm. the button and, yeah. you know, um, type painkillers. Um, so I'm a little out of it and, um, mom and dad are there. They had just gotten there. So, you know, remember we're not just gotten there. I'm sure they were there before that, but, um, that was the first time that I'd seen them and I'm intubated. So I got this giant like pipe in my throat. Right. And I can't really like articulate things. So I'm trying to sign language to them about what's going on you know, in my mind. I'm thinking I'm getting ready to go into surgery, even though I've just come out of surgery. And, um, I'm thinking, you know, after the ambulance experience, I'm probably not making it out, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. uh, so you gotta swallow what you know and, you know, tell them what's up, like tell them, so I'm trying to sign to them. I don't really even know that much sign language. <laughs> In your head, you're like, this, I'm doing it. Yeah. Doing it, no. So they got me a sheet of paper, um. Uh, and I wrote to my mom and dad who were standing there. I said, uh, actually, I think it was to mom, your grandmother, right? Wow. You'd think. Turns out, yeah, well, and my sister had already had her kid, at least Dylan, probably Ollie at that point too. Um, I see what you're so she goes, kind of pats me on the head and says, yes, dear. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> And you're just so like, you, I've you're... got the knife in my throat and I'm like, I just, and, and I lock eyes with dad and he looks back at me and I just give him like one of those, oh, cause he can't say anything, but I could articulate at least the groan. Uh, and he threw mind, you're like, this is it. This is the moment <laughs> I have to say this cause I'm not going to have another moment. Right. Right. Ever. I don't know if I'll ever be able to tell you in another way. And it it did, you know. Awesome. God, she's she's awesome lady, but it sure it just took an extra second or two when we didn't have it. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Dad got it right away. Yeah, and he 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 uh, he communicated so, the message. 
your story is, you know, we're kind of taking things out of order a little bit, but really I think it's important because so in your life, you've taken these risks. Like you just took a risk. Like when you're, have you, first off, have you skydived since the accident? I don't know. Absolutely. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Skydiving is very safe. Swooping is not safe. I want to skydive. What hurt me is not safe. I want to skydive really bad. Which I wholly encourage and back up. I'll support you in every step of the way. Was I telling you about how I wanted to reverse tandem as I skydive instead of like where the guys behind me I want to be facing so we make eye contact the whole time? Because we Mm. talked about skydiving at my (laughs) wife's birthday party and you convinced me to never base jump in my life and we yeah don't no base jumping yeah but i just thought it'd be really funny to like lock eyes like he's he or she's staring at me and we're just staring the whole time and like we're just we're just not locking mm. we're not getting out of the gates but anyway as long as you promise me that you'll scream like when it comes close to pull time you pull first yeah no you pull first <laughs> you pull point break. The best one of the best movies of all time but like so your life like skydiving yes it's incredibly safe but it is still an incredible risk it's true it's true yep that's not fair to point that out you're right it is uh it is a risk you're a dad also a risk huge risk yeah but financially financially mentally emotionally to take risks so it's like you know i don't know it's like how do you you know if your kid says dad i want to skydive you know you what do you tell them when you're 18. Okay. Well, they're already in the tunnel too. They see daddy fly. They see mommy fly. They want to do what mommy and daddy do like anybody does. Yeah. I think one of the really interesting parts about parenting, I've had this conversation with a couple other guys, um, which is really an interesting one, is how do you um, talk about or how do you think about um, what your kids want to do, right? Yeah. And, and I think there's a very good answer, uh, which is, well, I want them to do whatever they get into, right? Very fair, right? If um, you put in front of them a whole bunch of different opportunities and they want to be uh, a football player or a ballerina or a flute player, you know, you yeah. support them in that endeavor, right? But I don't. I think that that negates a little bit of the influence that a parent has on a child. Uh, therefore, to to say like, my kids will never be skydivers if Christine and I didn't have any interest in skydiving. Period. You know, just it probably wouldn't happen. Which, you know, I say that my parents aren't skydivers, and yet I still had um, uh, the interest and inkling to do so. So there are other influences at, at factor here, but it, it it's not without. Uh, noting how much influence a parent has over a particular child's interests, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if you even if you go to the extreme of being like um, soccer dad, right, or uh, baseball dad, or whatever, and just driving them to a particular thing, regardless, you do have a significant amount of influence, even if they don't want to. I mean, the nightmare scenario is that they don't want to, and you're sending them to do it anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And so for the person that says, I want to support them in whatever they do, I think it's worth pointing out that whatever they want to do will be directly influenced by whatever it is that you put in front of them, mm-hmm. right? Really hope that soccer, for example, isn't the thing for right now. You know, I'm, I'm not really into soccer. My brother yeah. and I, when brother was just in town, right, for Christmas and stuff. And, uh, you know, we had some really fun discussion about 
soccer versus baseball and that kind of stuff. Like, you know, well, you know what, if I put only in front of my kid, um, theatrics and musicals and, uh, ice skating and chess, then all of a sudden soccer and baseball, it's a moot point because they're not interested in either of them. You know, you have a significant amount of influence as a parent over what your child is really interested in. So while I'm excited to see what it is that interests each of my children, it's not without conscious intervention that I've put all of my kids in the wind tunnel. (laughs) Do you think that, I guess what what I'm thinking about is with your kids, you want them to take risks and you also want them to know when you take that risk, there is something that, that could happen. Do you think that like, well, let me respond to that with the thought of what is the best teacher? Yeah, true. The mistake is the best teacher. The failure is the best teacher. I'd say experience Mm -hmm. success or failure. Right. But the word to me is experience and to rob a person child or otherwise, you know, because and especially in your profession, you've got to appreciate this too. You look after others that are not your actual family as if they are your family, Mm -hmm. right? You know, as the uh, president of an organization, I am responsible for, you know, a significant number of people's uh, lives and Mm -hmm. livelihoods and, you know, really day-to-day activities. Um, And as such, there comes a heavy burden with that. And a big way that I talk to, teach, and think about interacting with people is... that if the experience or mistake or whatever it might happen, worst case scenario can be had um, in a way that doesn't detriment them to, you know, catastrophic consequences, then it probably ought to be had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right back to the child level, right? Whether it's business, professional, you know, type interactions or down to the personal, you know, is, am I going to be upset by my child taking a gnarly spill on the scooter, mm-hmm. you know, no way he's going to cry. He's going to fall. He's going to bleed, you know, uh, or she, both of them have done it. <laughs> um, yeah. And I expect all of them to take, make and experience experience the pain of failure and learning. Yeah. I think that there's power in taking risks. There's power in showing that you should take risks. I think there's, for me, it's just such a foreign thing for me because everything that that was shown to me for all the wonderful, amazing things that my parents were like the examples of what you need to take the safe choice, take the safe route, get the safe car. For example, you get the car that's going to be, you're going to spend the least amount of money for the most amount of your bucks. You know, the decisions that you make, they need to be safe. So there would be nothing of be like, I'm going to jump out of a plane. They'd be like, you probably shouldn't do that. I want to go and spend a year in, I don't know, South America. I never, uh, they'd probably be like, man, it might not be the best idea. It was like this, this thing of safety, you know? And I think that, oh, Jasper, boy, he's fine. Anyway. Potty training, right? Potty training. Those are some sweet pants, by the way. I want a pair of pants like that for Christina. We'll talk about potty training in a second. (laughs) It's crazy. But like, like, I don't know. As a being a dad, the last thing I want for my kid is to see the safe route. I want him to know that 
he has a safe home, a safe background. We are here to support that. But go take the risks. Go take the chances. Go do that. You know, because it's, it's such a wild thing that I think, I don't know, maybe I, I'm seeing a lot of people. It's like the lesson is safe, safe, safe. Don't take the risks. Don't take the chances. Don't do this. You know, so. Where do you get, um, most often, where does that vibe come from? From your students' parents or parents, from, uh, I yeah. see it like. I wonder if it's not attributed to uh, a specific um, time of life experience, right? Like, I think I've seen it the most in parents in the last ten years. You know, I but think you, I what also, I'm saying is you're teaching kids of a certain age level, right? Like second yeah. or third grade or something, right? Is that right? Fourth grade. Fourth grade, but yeah, second to third. So I wonder if there's not like a natural tendency for us as people, you know, as humans, to be. Uh, uh, almost naturally overly protective for a certain time period of their lives. And I wonder if you're not seeing a skewed perspective on the general public because also you're only seeing parents. That's true. Right? Yeah. How would a individual who didn't have um, school-age kids feel, you know, or school-age kids of your particular grade level sure. as opposed to, say, college students? You know, yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of microchipping and I've already talked to Nolan about this. You just stick it right in between the shoulder blades. My brother's a vet, by the way, for those who are listening. You should microchip every one of your animals. I'm sorry. I feel and like And I that's... do. I got four animals, man. Yeah. I think that people... But yeah, I do think it's there. I think that I notice a trend where it's like, and maybe it's within the last 20 years, and I'll attribute No Child Left Behind with this, but Ooh. kids definitely, there's a pressure that kids feel in third grade about grades on a test that will affect them for the rest of their school career. You know what's so funny? I think that this COVID thing mind. really blows all that out of the way. Oh, and and does, I th- yeah. I, I'm so the one part of COVID that I think is just enormously exciting for me is the changes and disruptions that it's caused in the educational oh, systems. Man. Dude, I'm, we're literally sitting in my classroom right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great you know, classroom, by the way. I mean, yeah, I know. It's, it's my favorite classroom I've ever taught in. <laughs> when you can teach in board shorts and barefoot and then turn when school day's over, you hit click and you can take a beach walk. That's it's an amazing. epic day. I, That's an epic day. I know. But there's a lot of other teachers who have a lot more stressful experiences. Do you want to bring them in? No, I don't. No, we don't bring, <laughs> let let who, the people experience it for, for know, it's all of its glory. If, I don't know if people can hear. <laughs> you never know what you can hear when you're recording. But um, my kid is having a very hard time outside right now. Roy's doing the daddest of dad. Giving the the eye flicks to the door in concern. Well, I'm also looking at genuine I'm also, concern. I'm looking at the door and then looking if it picks up his his screams on the uh, on the computer, but I don't think it does. Anyway, tangent. But yeah, it's like a thing. Like parents and and kids, there is a disruption in that that's been really really wild. And I have to choose my words because I am a public school teacher right now. Oh, that's a good point. But, Wait, you um, want me to be the bad guy? I'll be the bad guy. I told, uh, um, so 
my sister's mm-hmm. dating this new guy. His name's Will. Great guy. Uh, he's got a little bit of an older daughter. Her name's Alana. Yeah. Um, we had a great time out at dinner the other night. Um, but you know, as is par for the course, Uncle Jay gets a little saucy on his wine, and we had a fun discussion. You know, family discussion because it, it really was. It was just the adults of the family: mom, dad, uh, Christina, me, Nikki, um, Alana, and Will. And um, you know, we were we were having. To me, it was a very fun conversation about out of the box solutions to you know, kind of what's going on these days. Mm-hmm. Alana is really great um, with, you know, focus and intensity and, you know, cello player and um, has some, you know, has has the ability to focus, right? But is not really into the whole, like, school thing. I was like, so drop out. Go get your GED. Go to the YouTube University. Learn whatever it is you want to learn. Like, if you ever had an excuse, if you ever had the chance in all of recent history to sign up with a, you know, somebody who's looking for you for a job, like don't show them some generic liberal arts degree, show them about all these courses that you took from Angie's list or that you can actually produce a particular result. If you're a graphic designer or a CAD designer Mm -hmm. or whatever it is, don't, dance around the issue of eventually you need to download these programs and demonstrate to somebody else that you can do what is required of you in a service economy. And what's Mm -hmm. required of you in a service economy is being a computer operator in some way, shape or form. You're a web designer, you're an illustrator, you're a coder, you're a programmer. You have value in the current economy in these ways you do or you don't. And your degree has nothing to do with that. You can put together a portfolio that has nothing to do with where you graduated from. And I guarantee you, if you're good at what you do, if you have product and not a degree, you'll get hired way faster than a degree and no product. I love that you called it YouTube University. I mean, there's so much you can learn now just on that platform. And it's wild to me how much it's how much it has changed. Like I gra I mean, I graduated in nineteen ninety nine. And I think about where we were in. Did 99. you party like it was nineteen ninety nine? Haven't heard that one before, Jay. <laughs> but I just think about like how different it was, and how like crazy it would be for me, like just the thought of graduating right now in this like and, and totally different world, right? How much information is at our fingertips at any point in time? Like we can access anything and everything that we want. And I think about like nine-year-olds. So let me tell you about a little project that I did that reminds me of how I'd like my kids to handle their projects and their learning Mm skill sets in the future. Um, I had a real interest in Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there was a point in time two or three years ago where like it hit like a recent high of seven thousand dollars i think it's like ten thousand dollars right now yeah. 20 or some ridiculous thing i don't My even follow it anymore father-in-law both have parts of a bitcoin see and and people are into it right and so yeah. it's it's very at the time it was trendy to learn about it and understand it so not only did i learn about it, i bought four or five books on it read about you know mm-hmm. uh, a couple of different strategies even there's a, an original the, the original white paper by satoru yakamoto it was like nine pages long so of course i downloaded that read it it's Hard to understand some of its technical perspective, but from a um, conceptual perspective, it's elegant in its simplicity and execution is just absolutely brilliant. But I noticed a flaw, not a flaw, but a built-in problem to Bitcoin is, uh, they call it the halving problem. 
every X amount of iterations of solving the problem with Bitcoin, it halves in the amount of value that it returns to the programs that solve the algorithm of, is this transaction legitimate, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So to better understand that, what I did was I actually bought a Bitcoin miner, right? Um, little machine, crazy little fan. Christina hated the fan. <laughs> it kept her awake all night long, so I could only keep it for like 15, 20 days, right? But yeah. in those 15, 20 days, I literally did the thing. I translated energy into currency and from the currency of Bitcoin. So I, Bitcoin is created by energy. So a fan turns and creates the monetary value. No, it's Bitcoin is a currency that people. Yeah. They use. Yeah. To yeah, Right. So it's a currency, but to verify a transaction is really the magic behind Bitcoin. And it's done through a um, series of, specific computer codes that uh-huh. are handled by specific machines um, that have literally been designed to do this one purpose, which is to solve this particular kind of algorithm. That's crazy. And it's a little box. It's about a foot and a half long and maybe six inches deep, six inches tall. Um, it's called an ant miner. Like it was like the ant miner S28 or S it was ant miner S9. That's what it was. Okay. That was the unit that I bought. Um, you have to keep it cool. It has to use the energy source that your house plugs into or whatever energy source you can get. Anyway, you learn a bunch about the details of this particular kind of passion project, right? And so what I'm getting at is all of these details I learned by doing it. Yeah. I didn't learn this. I, I bought a few books about it, right, to learn generically where I needed to go. I read some stuff on the internet. and then, But the, the real coup de gras here and where the knowledge gain actually happened was buying the machine, program the machine, translating the currency that I earned in Bitcoin to dollars and extracting those dollars into my bank account. Mm-hmm. I fucking manifested money out of an idea, nevertheless energy, but I, I translated an idea. That's That to me is the root core of entrepreneurship and how you add value to an economy and really what our children should be learning indirectly through sports and competition or chess or thespianism Mm -hmm. or whatever passion project they want to be a part of, right? But therein lies, again, the issue that I'm driving at, which is that if you want your children to learn, you let them immerse themselves in a passion project and not subject themselves to some government-dictated algorithm of what they should maybe learn Mm -hmm. to hopefully be ready for the economy that's coming down the pipe in like 10 years that... It just doesn't make that what worked in the World War II manufacturing ideas of the of the 50s and 60s doesn't work for now. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what I learned from my Bitcoin and bit mining project was kind of what dad always referred to as the 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 process of learning what it means to learn. And to learn what it means to learn, right, is a meta study. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a meta project, right? So what I learned from my Bitcoin study was how to learn about this particular process and how I could extrapolate that to other processes and things that I wanted to learn about. So for me, when I want to teach my kids how to learn something, I'm not into telling you how to go surf a wave. I'm going to buy you a surfboard. We're going to go paddle. We're going to go work at being surfers. And you're going to learn what it means almost existentially, right? Almost like outside of yourself, what it means to uh, 
personify to be a surfer, right? And even if that only means that you learn it for 30 days or get an idea of what it means to live that life, right? To be totally immersed in a particular project, persona, or, um, you know, endeavor of study, that immersion and that learning is the kinds of learning processes that you never forget that you get to connect disparate parts of who you were Mm -hmm. with who you now are having learned it and then get to make these really interesting benefits from. So flashback real quick to the, uh, Bitcoin project a few months after I had terminated my project because I just deemed it to be unsustainable for a few different reasons. Um, and thought maybe, you know, if somebody could pull it off on a large scale, that might be kind of neat. And there's, as it happens to be a, uh, there was a facility called because, um, that opened up on Greenwich road and they put like 62 or $64 million worth, um, into this particular facility. Yeah. Um, and did some really, really cool stuff to the building. I mean, it was like everything that I was like kind of dreaming of, like could be possible to maybe execute if you had just unlimited funds and you know, really wanted to make a good go at this. God, these guys did it. Mm-hmm. Then there was a dude, I, I can't remember his exact name, um, who was at the helm of it, who was just a absolute visionary and, um, was instrumental in setting this whole project up. Um, he invited our entrepreneur organization in to do a little tour and to, uh, you know, see the facility, learn about it and, you know, kind of talk about what's going on. Great. You know, Hey, I get to, I'm slam face into this intersection between what I chased on a personal level, you know, Mm -hmm. thinking of just, you know, general interest with this guy who's doing it on like the level I could only begin to imagine. You know, so I'm frothing at the mouth. We go through the tour and it's just awesome. Um, it's everything you could ever imagine it to be. And we get into a little like um, office room afterwards and, you know, he's Q&Aing and whatever. And, you know, I raised my hand. I asked one question and I said, you know, how do you solve the having problem? And he fucking downplayed me like I was some half, half-witted idiot. You know, he hindsight politicked me out of um being relevant in the discussion because he either didn't know the answer or didn't want to talk about the answer in front of people eight months later they're bankrupt eight months later they went out of business i think you brought up a that's I pulled the plug on my personal project. I connected the disparate pieces. I want my children to learn in the way that I learned in that particular project. And what all was the real coup de grace of the whole thing was that ultimately, even though I knew the answer, knew the right answer, and was willing to speak the answer Mm -hmm. to somebody who could have made a difference, you know, life ain't fair. Mm -hmm. And it's not always about who's right, you know? But it's about what kind of battles you participate in, right? And I'm certainly was not going to be one of those investors to sign up and say, hey, here, here, because here's my money, right? And I've had multiple interactions with other big name people over the years that have either asked for me to be an angel investor or asked me to be interested in a particular project or whatever else. Like I am very, very picky about what projects I participate in, right? And um, it has to make a lot of sense. And you don't get that kind of sixth sense, that kind of ability to judge, um, without having 
some sort of tangible experience with hopefully something that's close to whatever that investment's in. Yeah. Wow. That's really intense. But it's how it's, I mean, the question is, yeah. how do you want your kids to learn? I'll tell you another question yeah. that's really fun that you asked was, what, what do you view your role as a father? I was about right? to ask you. I, I was thinking about it's a perfect segue. I think everything you're asking at, but I also wanted to, you know, because I want to talk about, because I think you're bringing up the role, but there's so much power in bringing something to someone of authority and them shooting you down and that feeling. And that is like being a father, being a teacher, kids asking you really legitimate questions of what they're interested in. And then the people that are above them, you know, shooting them down. So, and that's a real challenge, right? How do you teach them to swallow that pride or to still, how do you be strong enough to have an opinion in which others disagree, but still be like, and and honestly, I have trouble with this sometimes, right? I have opinions that people don't like. Mm -hmm. And at times, is it, it is every time a judgment call that sometimes I make an error. Is it worth being right or is it worth being liked? Man. Ooh, it is tough. It's tough being the authority. I mean, I've been the authority with kids for the better part of a decade. And you think about, I think for me, I've always thought about the idea of, of showing the fact that I can handle being wrong is way more powerful than immediately trying to give people the right answer or try to cover up to the kids that I made a mistake because in all honesty, kids see bullshit way better than we do. They got and that, I, they got that radar, right? They do. They know. And so it's like, you know, Oh yeah, I messed up guys. My bad. Sorry. I clicked the wrong button or, Oh yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Where's you know, that think, sincerity? Yeah. But I think that comes from me seeing teachers as, terrible people anyway but we don't need to go into that so far that was what a cannibal what a cannibal he is over there yeah i know (laughs) here it is but yeah well let me tell you let me throw this out there too so um a big thing that i'm a big believer in right is um you know trying to act with integrity as much and as best as you can like to your point, transparency and honesty and like straightforwardness, right? So um, one of the things that I hope my kids come away with, and this is something that I use with employees a lot too. I, I mean, literally have written this saying up on whiteboards so many times. And it's a Shakespearean one. Um, so actually the routine goes, I write this quote up on the board um, and then I sign it, Bill S, and see how many people you know, can put two and two together. That's funny. Um, what stronger breastplate than a heart untainted? Thrice is he armed that hath his quarrel just, and he but naked, though locked up in steel, whose conscience with injustice is corrupted. Jeez. So we talk about, you know, to paraphrase, um, that there are a lot of opportunities in our business, and there are a lot, a lot of opportunities in life in general, right? So you can extrapolate this argument. There are a lot of opportunities to act with a weak breastplate. Right. But when your breastplate is strong, what's stronger breastplate than a heart untainted? Right. If your heart is untainted and your quarrel just, your willingness to fight is one that is true and to be um, one that you believe to your core, um, you know, and one that you can justify, quantify, whatever way it is that you um, 
can make it so, mm-hmm. you know, but if it's a quarrel that you feel is just, then it's uh, one that that breastplate becomes hard to tear away. Right. Yeah. I love the idea of teaching kids to fight the right battles. Not every battle. Pick your battles. Can't tell you how many times pops repeated that phrase to me. Still don't still learning, especially with boys. We're very, it's something innate in us to tack. I mean, I see that. I, I see it in even the difference between a male dog versus a female dog. There's this inherent, and I don't know what it is, what it is, but you just attack first. But I think with, with boys and I try to, I try to instill that. And I hope that I can instill that with, with my kid is just, you fight the right ones. You don't have to fight everyone. There's, there's a, there's a, a power and a beauty and an integrity in being able to discern what, when, when to step in, you know, leadership, yeah. right? I mean, ultimately, so one, one part of me goes to like the evolutionary bias, right? The yeah. evolutionary mm-hmm. bias is kill all those that are weaker than you. Yep. It's what we're, it's what our primate brain is kind of designed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only one male in the pack. Yep. <laughs> um, but then there's another um, kind of calling that you can exert that kind of dominance without the violence. Yeah. Right? Oh my God. Every movie, there's always that guy. The old guy that sits and doesn't say a word. Everyone could be fighting around him. He just sits and all of a sudden he's the Godfather. Up. You know who else yeah. it makes me think of is Kevin Spacey in the usual suspects. Oh yeah, Kevin Spacey. <laughs> I think of um I mean there was I think of like Sam Elliott and Roadhouse. Uh oh. I think about yeah, there's this this like that, that Pulp old, Fiction. Yeah. Every, oh, God. Quentin every Tarantino. Every person that, like, doesn't. You know, my the, bike's name is Beatrix. It's the female uh, um, protagonist in um, Pulp Fiction and Pulp wow. Fiction 2. You're not you're not talking to a Quentin Tarantino fan. Oh. Uh, I have a very love-hate relationship with his movies. Well, I did like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but his, his, his movies take me on too much of a roller coaster of, like... <laughs> Because like I think I always reference Django Unchained, where one of the few I haven't seen. But you have this incredibly intense, awesome acting, and it just devolves into ridiculousness. Then it goes back up into this incredibly intense, awesome acting, devolves into ridiculousness. And I've seen it in every one of his movies. But I digress. But yeah, it's it's you know you want to teach him the right battles. You want to teach him to walk with integrity. So then I think, is it? I've been trying to figure out what you're I'm trying to guess what you view your role as a dad is. And my first thought was like, you're like a Gandalf. You're a teacher. You're an example. You're a leader. You know, maybe can't disagree with any of those. Right. Yeah. But I think to uh, get the full answer to that, we're going to have to wait until the end of this restroom break. (laughs) (laughs) Daddy needs a cliffhanger. (laughs) And we are back. For those of you, it was just a second. For us, it was about five minutes. <laughs> restroom break. Enough time to pee and get a couple of presidentes. Which is important. These are, these are not any ordinary presidentes. No, they're the last two for 60 days. Mm. 
we'll get into that at one point. It's, it's just a perfect time to stop drinking for a while. Mm. The new year brings that in. Yeah. Yeah. But we were uh, we were talking about the role of a father, what you view as your role of, as a dad. Man, um, so I think probably first and foremost is you know basic basic stuff, food, yeah. water, shelter, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> Let's take care of the basics. And uh, the basics kind of start with uh, with yourself. Yeah. Right? So what's the first job of a father to be a good role model? Right? How do you exhibit, uh, um, you know, really what, you know, so I'll reference some of the most recent readings and stuff that I've been into, which has been um, some of the Stoics. So Marcus Aurelius, mm-hmm. um, Ben Franklin has uh, come into play. Yeah. He's got 13 virtues that are really cool to study and to, um, learn from, um, just read a really cool book called the, um, happiness hypothesis. The happiness Um, hypothesis. Yeah. It's a professor out of UVA. I wish I could, uh, scope his name on the, on the fly, but I can't. Um, but it's a great book. Um, talks about the elephant and the rider and, um, kind of, the elephant being our id, you know, what we want to do, what, what our natural inclination is to do without hesitation or, or without the interference of the rider and the rider becomes that regulator, that rev limiter, you know, that, um, you know, hypothalamus thinking part of the brain. Right. So, um, first and foremost role of a father is to be a role model, right? Exhibit what you believe to be a, uh, balanced life, you know, um, through balance right there. Good stuff. Cheers to that. Right. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Actually, I mentioned to you before we started, but, uh, you know, since we're, you know, live, it's, uh, worth, uh, recognizing one of the, um, th- big belief in my, my personal, uh, my what big belief, uh, that I have personally, that I hold personally, that I exhibit, try to exhibit in uh, all facets of, of my life is, is, is the belief of balance. And I mm-hmm. even so much have gone so far as to have a stone with the word balance on it that sits, uh, right underneath my way too big for practical use monitors at my president desk. <laughs> <laughs> See? It was inevitable you would be on here. <laughs> Oh, yeah. it's so funny, man. I actually, those, uh, <laughs> those monitors come from an, an office that we shut down or whatever, just old stuff that just couldn't be used anywhere else. So, um, but anyway, yeah, the word balance sits right up under there. And, um, to me, demonstrating a balanced life to my children is important. And that's mm-hmm. to include professional, you know, the ability to provide the basics, food, shelter, clothing, mm-hmm. uh, personal uh growth you know what do you do as an individual to better um uh your yourself right so for me for jay you know what am i doing to make jay better uh and that's to exclude uh your personal care to exclude family wife that kind of stuff whatever um you know those those have their own compartments you know your emotional and relationship role and value, you know, your balance there is how do you take care of your wife? How do you make sure she has what she needs? How do you take care of your kids and they have what they need? How do you know 
and recognize your role within certain social circumstances, like for the family, right? Uh, my role in the family is to be a step below the kids. That's interesting and different to me because in my professional life, my role is to be el numero uno, you mm -hmm. know, the buck stops here kind of guy, right? Yeah. Like, um, and that leadership mentality and solution comes in a lot of different ways, shapes and forms. I don't mean to say that I'm autocratic in my decision-making method, but ultimately when you are the dude whose uh, ink is on the line, you know, it, it is a role in which you have to recognize a certain amount of responsibility. Is it hard to take that, like to leave that? Like oh, yeah. when you, it's certainly been the cause of strife, right? <laughs> Look at all day for like eight to 10 hours a day. Everyone does exactly what I asked them to and do. And you come home, no one's going to do anything. Nobody does anything I asked them to do. They're not going to do plan. They're, they're, fuck's That's sake, a... not going to do plan A. They're not even, they're probably not even looking at B and C. They're going to do D. And that probably involves outside and whatever the least, what you want to spend the least amount of time in. That's what they're going to do. So that has to be difficult. Relinquishing that control is yeah. a part of the balance. And Whew. if you get that balance wrong, yeah. you know, the universe has a funny way of snapping back at you. Yeah, very much. Um, and, you know, I know the phrase is happy wife, happy life, and that's a little, you know, cliche. But at the same time, if you are demonstrating to your children what your role in life is, if your role in life doesn't include making your wife happy, what's your problem? We develop every one of our stories in our reality, I believe, based on what we see as a kid. Interesting. I do believe that. And so in your perception, the role model thing is incredibly important. Yeah, I think, I think kids need to see. I take that as being a man in charge of 30 kids. On average, half are girls. They need to see. It's very important what they see in my actions. Because we develop what we believe, think, about the world or what's possible when we're kids. And if they see a man in an authority role being lording their power over them and telling everyone to sit down shut up, that's what they're going to think men are supposed to be or teachers are supposed to be. But if they see that it can be anything, and I try to be very respectful, very nurturing as much as I can be. Dude, so that's so terrifying to me like as a teacher, right? That oh, like, you third, yeah. take the role of parent for six hours, seven hours a uh, day? 7.33. And... But you let think me, let about me, like, let me, well, okay, well, I'll put this on like firm recording that I, so I got tons of family members, mm -hmm. both sides of the tree that are teachers and everything else. And I cannot emphasize the point enough that p teachers just do not get paid enough. <laughs> Yeah, it it blows my mind that such good people like yourself and my mother-in-law, I mean, God, she just slaves sometimes the amount of hours that she puts in. Mm -hmm. um, I got a, a brother-in-law, John Ross. His, his is a little bit different cause, but still. 
belief for the cause is, is, is very, very interesting in how it affects people. But mm-hmm. I tell you, there has never been a belief in the cause more relevant than, uh, and, and more underrated than what teachers put forth. Yeah. It just blows my mind, man. Absolutely well, I appreciate blows you my saying mind. That. I think it's definitely something where <clears throat> people, I mean, we, we look for value in things and I think if you, You know, I, I think that we should value the role models and the value that a role model has on a kid, you know, the value, what they're seeing. And if you can fill that with really empathetic, strong people, there's a lot of value in that. And there's a lot of power in that. Even being a dad, there's a lot of value in, in showing showing your kids how to treat a woman I mean, it's a lesson that should last a lifetime, right? You know, it's, it's but for one 50% of 50 percent of men, it doesn't. Or, I well, I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily fair to say that, but for, for 50% of couples that get married, there's, you know, I know that that he, reality that they're going to go through a divorce. I know that he's going to see everything that I do, you know, and I want. At Dude, least, and they're sponges, right? I at least want him to see empathy, kindness, love, and it starts with my wife. I mean, one of the biggest things that my dad ever taught me was that mom's car was never out of gas. My dad, if he noticed that my mom's car, if mom's car was out of gas, he would make a special trip fill it up she rarely ever put in gas in the car what a really cool way to think about that that's really like, and, and demonstrate and it's through not that, action it's not that my mom couldn't do it of course she could do it my mom grew up breaking horses played college basketball and lived in new york in the 70s uh with orphans and drug addicted women so my mom could could fill up her car with gas but that little like thing and I'm thinking about it. I didn't do it. I'm still gonna. It's still gonna be. I'm still gonna not gonna cut this out. But it. I didn't fill up the car with gas today. Oh no! <laughs> but like that's a thing. But like that thought is like something that I just saw my dad do. And I think it's very important that as you know, we show them that. Well, you know what's kind of gnarly is uh, probably about you know five to ten years or so. You probably won't even have to worry about gas anymore anyway. That's true. As I drive my Chevy Bolt and sniff my own farts. <laughs> You're so smug. You're so smug. You're so smug. Oh my god! I want you to just move to San Francisco. God, I miss South Park. Oh man. Um, the uh, the 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 COVID episode was yeah. so good. It's oh so my good. Gosh. I only talk about that with a few people because we're very, it's a very tense environment that we're in nowadays. But if I could think of like the one people that could tell the story correctly, it was those guys. And, the, and, I, and I watched the episode and it was, it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. God, I hope they're in the history books. Right? They will be. Um, tell me about your dad. I know I just like threw it in there, but I, I think that we've been talking for, an hour and 20 but i think that one of the biggest important one of the biggest things i like to talk about on this is 
dads to talk about their dad and what they bring to fatherhood that they learn from their dads. Dad's a really good dude. Yeah. Um, you live next door to him, don't you? I do. He's a, I'll tell you a really, really cool. Um, piece of dad stuff that I hope he listens to. Cause I don't know that he'll, that he would have said this about himself kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he's been a really great demonstrator of how to do, um, you know, um, exhibit the lifestyle that he expects. One of the things that he told us to do both me and my sister, cause my sister's involved in business also, um, that he always expected us to do and demonstrated that he did, um, was one-on-one interactions with the staff, um, each and every one of them. And one of the best ways to do it was to take out their trash. Your dad took out the trash. I take out the trash, but you, my your dad, dad took takes out the, out the trash. We you... took out trash together. Literally went desk to desk, talking to people. You just grab the, because we have a big trash can, like yeah. a 50 gallon drum. So you just grab the little trash bag by their desks. Yep. And you ask them to either dump it out, you know, if you're feeling lazy or if you're okay replacing the ba- the plastic liner. Most of the times they won't even let you anyway. They'll do it themselves. But you just f- flop the little plastic liner back on their own personal one. And every one of them has their own personal story, right? Every one of uh-huh. them needs their own personal attention. And no matter who you are, whether you're a sales guy or somebody from HR, or we even have like a specific assignment, uh, for somebody called the, uh, staff experience expert, um, call them the seer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and they work at making the staff experience better, you know, every day. But you take out, you run the company. You're oh, yeah, and that position didn't exist when uh, Dad was at the company but, but, either. But, but he manifested charge. it. Yeah, yeah. You're in charge. You're the boss of everything, and you take out the trash. Well, I'll put it into context that, you know, will help it make a little bit of sense, right? Yeah. We have about uh, 50 staff members that are involved with coordinating anywhere between twelve and 1,400 mm-hmm. Um, placements in the fields and the local shipper park shipyards ship repair industry mm-hmm. uh, manufacturing and logistics so moving freight and stuff um, we've got some really awesome clients that do some really awesome stuff everything from keeping our country safe through the service of the fleet to uh, moving the goods that you know you take off the shelf daily um, through the major retailers and manufacturers in, in the area we're a local company. We've been around for almost 30 years and um, we put people to work and we do the right thing yeah. every day. Um, so the 50 or so people that are responsible for the field placements and the management of them, those are the ones that I'm dealing with most specifically. And even at the time that dad was in charge, it was anywhere from 30 to 40 um or so he actually his claim to fame is that at one point in time he expanded the uh, business from like Pennsylvania to Florida mm-hmm. you know had like 20 25 offices or something like that but 
it just makes more sense for where we are, where we are as a company and what we're trying to do, um, to be a more locally focused organization. You know, I can drive within the 45 minutes and get to any one of our offices. I can address issues personally. I can have the interactions like helping take out the trash. You know, I know what my staff issues are. I know what, for the most part, is going on with our customers and mm -hmm. talking with them on a frequent basis and our associates. You know, um, I make frequent on-site visits to the shipyards. And all of that comes from the time that I spent with Dad going from office to office, trash can to trash can, talking with people. Why do you think it's so powerful to take out their trash? It's kind of the parable of washing the feet, right? Yeah, I get it. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's super cool. And, you know, who is dad to me? And dad's, uh, he's been a great mentor, a great demonstrator, um, great disciplinarian. Um, <laughs> he wouldn't, yeah. In the sense of setting a discipline. As in, do this on a regular basis. Yeah. Do what the coaches say you're going to do. Say yeah. the fr dare dare to be that hick in class that says yes, sir. Because mm -hmm. you know what? It's that dude that gains respect from the ones who matter. You know, he's also a quintessential politician. He never would admit that, uh, but he's inherently good at uh, has a really really emotionally uh, emotional. Uh, his, his emotional IQ is extraordinarily high. Yeah. Uh, he's very, very attuned to what's going on in, in a room. Um, and, and honestly, one of the shames I think in his life is that he never used that more to his advantage later in life that he, he probably would have made a great politician in one way, shape, form or another. And I'm thankful that he didn't, um, you know, cause I don't think he's really about that life, but I think his skill set. And part of what I carry with me also is, um, you know, hopefully a little bit of that emotional IQ, which is funny because you don't quantify emotional IQ on a standardized test, right? Yeah, which okay. kind of brings us to what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. How do you really quantify what do you want to teach your kids, right? What What's do you really want them to learn? What's, What's a really value? Get you to the next level? What's really going to get you through life? Stuff like that. So it's safe to say you learn well, a lot. There's a reason that, it's. Yeah not what you know, it's who you know, yeah. right? That's the phrase. <laughs> yeah. I always want to be that guy that walks into places and people just give him like, oh, no, you're good. Not that I want free stuff, but like the people that did that, it was like a give and take. It was like that he helped them, so they're helping him. I think that's the way to look at it, right? Yeah. Almost like the godfather. Yeah. Like, yeah. You, yeah, you're good but you're good because you did me this favor before that you didn't have to. Yeah. So you learned a lot from your dad. Uh, an enormous amount. And, and I still call him, you know, if there's a no. tense business issue or one in which I'd like some historical perspective or there, there are a lot of situations, you know, history is cyclical, right? Like mm -hmm. this stuff repeats itself. The, the same problems that we see on the waterfront or in the warehousing industry or with people, um, whatever it might be. Yeah. He's been there. He's done that, you know? So like, he's kind of like the cheat code. <laughs> yeah. I think I have a I really just, good idea of what I want to do here, but, uh, let me, let me hit up my cheat code real quick and see what, uh, it's so funny. 
you said that your dad took out the trash and I immediately got that tingly feeling like when you hear a really good song. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, the small things in life is really what tells you about a person. The things, those little things they do. It's not the big stuff. It's not the fact that like, I mean, it's awesome that a guy, you know, saved five people from a burning building and he's this amazing person or whatever. But these little, these little things are the most powerful things. And I think it's really cool that your dad showed you that. Like taking out the trash for someone is like, man, or like someone in authority what? stooping down to do something small and menial, 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 word? menial? sure, yeah. I mean, well, and I tell you, there's another, there's another piece to it, mm-hmm. right? That you touched on a little bit, but it, the, the little things, but it's the little things done daily. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big believer in, uh, in, in what I was mentioning about discipline, right? Was that, you know, to add to the trash story, it wasn't like, oh, hey, what a surprise, Mark. Thanks for doing this. It was, oh, hey, here it is again, you know? Again, Mark, you, know, I, you just cleaned it yesterday was, yeah. was the attitude. So it wasn't just that he did it. It was that he did it on a routine basis in which, like, the staff recognized that they could give their feed, feedback that way. And whether or not we even, we, you know, I do still maintain that discipline. You ask any one of my staff members, uh, everything from the shred box to the standard trash, um, you know, but, uh, we, you can extrapolate that lesson and, um, look, dad built a great company, right. And I perceive my role as next in line and what, my father has kind of instructed or left me with to do is to take care of the family business and to take care of the family. And as such, I take the lessons like Mm -hmm. take out the trash, listen to your people and extrapolate that to, we now have a marketing department that monitors our social media that responds to and makes recommendations for different programs that respond to what our customers and what our associates are saying. And so not only do we listen to our staff, but we listen to what um, the market in general has to say. And that's something that dad taught me that Mm -hmm. I can build on, you know, and brings me back to the meta study of learning, right? Like if these are the things that I've learned from any particular role model, how do I replicate that in another fashion? You know, yeah. any particular role model being a learning process or a project, or, you know, you can, you can define that in a lot of different ways. So <clears throat> dad has influenced me and my children's lives in all kinds of very difficult to measure ways. Um, but I think more than anything, it's, um, been a really clear series of concepts. Um, the kind of the family, family motto, if you will, right. Leadership, attitude, service, integrity, and responsibility. Lassier. And it's, um, something that, I don't think he was as excited about when he first showed it to us, you know, (laughs) but personally as, uh, my life has gone on and, um, you know, the business has grown in, 
the same pursuit of those core values. Um, and I get to look at those values as to what I'd like to pass along to the kids. You know, those are the things that don't waver. You know, you want to be a good leader. You want to have a positive attitude no matter what the situation is. You want to be in service to others, especially those closest to you, your kin. You know, you take care of your family. Um, but then you also make sure that you take care of those who take care of you. Um, and you do it with integrity. You know, you do what you say you're going to do when you're going to do it. And then if you don't, you take responsibility for those actions. You know, if you don't live up to what you said you're going to do, ultimately, you recognize personal accountability. Mm-hmm. So I think I know that's what dad passed down to us. Um, and that's what expectation I hope to, you know, that's what I aspire to, to make sure that Riley, Mila, Kai, and Paige all know that we expect them to be leaders. And I expect them to be good people it's really cool we need more examples of that we do it's a good example wouldn't mind meeting your dad (laughs) (laughs) he'd probably have all kinds of great things he's he's a talker too man (laughs) so uh man thank you for sharing that i think it's it's such a cool god I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. He's close. You know where to find him. He's right next door. I know. There's so many people that when I think of like people that have, because I've had a lot of really cool male influences in my life specifically, and they were the ones that would take out the trash. And I think that's why it gave me the tingles is because like it reminded me of all of those people, like the people in my life that have taught me the lessons were those people because there's, you know, it's just a thing like even pushing the cart to the car corral, you know, at the grocery store, there's people who leave it and there's people that push it back. That's a real definer of personality, really isn't is. it? And, and, and there's a power like my, my dad and my dad was the type of person that would grab someone's cart for them and push it in. And it's super small and super insignificant to a lot of people, but that's a very powerful statement a very menial meaningful menial task i keep messing up that word but i know everyone that's well, i got another m word for you and i well, call it microcosms yeah a microcosm of course but it's the stuff that no one wants to do and if you see someone of authority if you see your father if you see the teacher doing that and doing it with an an a good attitude and a and an attitude of like this no no this is just what i do like Let me tell you a really are funny. Take, people are gonna take that, and it's gonna just magnify. I got a really good story about how this um, all ties together with the uh, um, medial tasks, right? Yeah. There's a book that my dad introduced me to, probably sometime in high school. Shortly thereafter, like maybe again in college, and I still didn't really read it, um, but sometime either just after college say whatever i revisited one some of the books that he'd recommended to me and Mm -hmm. have since become a much better reader about uh, just in general really that and audiobooks really that audiobooks changed the game for me Mm -hmm. (laughs) i do a lot of driving in a day i knock out a lot of audiobooks (laughs) but uh one of the books that he first really wanted me to read um 
that I eventually did get around to doing so after a while was uh, The Millionaire Mind Mm -hmm. and The Millionaire Next Door. Actually, I think it was The Millionaire Next Door. Um, and basically this guy just did a study, um, a, you know, non-biased study on the raw data behind those whom have a net worth of $1 million or more. And there's a lot of really interesting summaries about that particular study. But one of the ones that I walked away with that really was meaningful to me, and I think that dad was trying to get across to me was most of the millionaires in our country are built off of people who do kind of just so type of tasks you know a lot of auto body salvage Mm -hmm. a lot of small business mom and pop kind of stuff a lot of um not real glorious kinds of things um yeah there was the maybe 20, 25% of the total population that was like lawyers, doctors, dentists, and things like that. But it was a much smaller percentage than the ones who really did more of the generic wrench turning. And um, I always found that to be really, really cool because it was raw data that kind of vindicated that I didn't have to be like an engineer to be successful at being able to provide the basics that I referenced earlier, right? Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, that's what it comes down to is what does it take to carry on the genealogy? You know, what does Mm -hmm. it take to make sure that my kids, my wife, um, and, you know, that that we have what we need? That translates into, you know, in very raw terms, a lot of times, how much cash can you generate with as little effort as possible? (laughs) Yeah. Maybe as little as time investment is as possible that's probably a better that's probably a better way to put it because that's the most valuable asset that we have right um 100 it's not yeah it's not money right mm-hmm. it's uh there are a lot of people out there that have a lot of money that aren't very happy um but anyway kind of a uh digression um but the point of the millionaire next door was that it really isn't most times the people that you expect that have a bunch of money because they sack it away in a way that uh, guarantees their way of life for the foreseeable future. You know, that's real retirement is not having to work, but choosing to work. Yeah. And so if you can get to that point, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. And is also a point where you can demonstrate to next in line that there, there's a real balance there, right? I can continue to add value to an organization or to the net worth of us as us as individuals or to making sure that mom and dad have enough money set away um, to handle mom's skin cancer or Mima's diabetes or yeah, whatever unforeseen stuff might come our way. Um, you know, having... It's, yeah. It's getting that long money. I think about the the movies where there's ever like a crime heist. There's always <laughs> that old guy that's like, get the job. Take the job that means you won't have to take another job. I know that scene. Oh God, I know that scene. Um, we'll and it's the old dude from. Um, it's not Home Improvement. Oh my gosh, I can see that scene. I think it's like Ben Affleck or. Uh, one of those bins, one of those really look good looking dudes. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting across from the guy and he's like, you want, you're going to have to edit this out too. You want the fuck money as yeah. in, 
Give well, me just enough that I can be well, done yeah. with this and never come back. So there's a it. Mark Wahlberg movie. That's what it is. Yeah. Wahlberg. And I, yeah, and it's uh it's I forget what the movie is called, but he's the guy in it's telling him you need to get the fuck you money. Yes. Like that's yep. and, and it's the people that do but it's it, if you, you know, can break out of the system. Yeah. Right. To get the fuck you money. And that's fine. We can say the fuck you money on this. It's okay. <laughs> but it's like but but you know you had a very powerful example of that and now you can use that and you can show it to your kids and show it to other people and that example is a very powerful thing to to have that because people we have a very skewed view of of what success is and how to get the success and that doesn't work for everybody. Well, does what is success, right? Does success True. equal happiness, right? And, and that's have, like the whole oh, happiness cons or the whole we happiness could, hypothesis yeah, was about. We could have episode after episode about that. Right? It gets really, that rabbit hole yeah. is deep. I know. <laughs> I, uh, we're, we're running up on time, but I want to talk about, we, we've gotten so many things. <laughs> Jay, this has been incredible. We've gotten so deep, so fast. And just stuck with it for the longest time. It's it's been awesome. I want to know because I, I like to ask this question a lot. What's the funniest thing about being a dad, or that you've experienced as being a dad? Oh my God, the vocabulary and what comes out of their mouths. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, uh, <clears throat> I really, really, really enjoy watching um, their interactions amongst themselves. Oh yeah. And you then, tell, I mean, you got four of them, so there's all sorts of dynamics we could go on. on that's that. a really good point. That's true. So, yeah. So my favorite dynamic is one on one, one on two, one on three. Now it's uh, what what really what's really neat is um, ring around the rosy. The other night, there was Riley, Mila. Mom and Kai and all of them were doing Ring Around the Rosie the other night. And it was a whole loud chorus. Paige was watching from the from the carpet, you know, from where she could see them. And um so the funniest, the most fun, the most like kind of rewarding, like step back and kind of think about it moment was that that happened really recently. Um and seeing their interaction and being like, uh, having a sense of fulfillment mm-hmm. because you feel like you've, you've done it, you know, like that's rad. They're happy. They're dancing. The music is playing. The heat is on. The light is on. We have a roof over our head, a refrigerator full of food. Uh, just, that felt really good. Nice. Yeah. What's been the most effortless thing? Like something that like breastfeeding. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. Like the thing that like when it happened, it just was like, like you didn't even think about it. Like for me, it was like, uh, I don't know. I, the most effortless thing has been, I remember the first diaper I changed 
was the most effortless oh, thing I'm I've ever done. Lucky you. <laughs> like, God, I, I felt like, like a, a six-thumbed idiot. I felt so dumb with the first the It just was I something changed. about it. I don't know. I just was like, boom, boom, boom. It was done. And I was like, oh, my God. I just changed the diaper. <laughs> okay. What I'm happened? Good. I just yeah, blacked out. I'm fine with that. But like, has there been something that's just been like, it was just, it was like, I don't know. If you could think of something. Oh, I'll tell you another one. This pulls straight from dad. The yeah. more catastrophic, the more awful the situation the colder and more like disciplined he becomes. So as they get more wild, I've found a really um, special place of really like, it's like just somewhere where, you know, there, there, there's part of me that will yell at times, but like when stuff gets really gnarly, it, there's just a really ice cold calm that came really natural to me that it, uh, before I had experienced it, I had admired from dad. Um, didn't think I had it, (laughs) but I'm recognizing that, uh, you know, that's one that is going to come to serve for decades. Yeah. I I know what you're talking about. I had to cultivate it as a teacher and I'm recultivating it as a dad. Mm -hmm. Cause I think the wilder you even mentioned this, right before I became a dad about how noise is a big deal. Mm. You probably don't remember this conversation, but for me, noise never bothered me because I'm used to being in a situation where there's just, there's 30 people in a room <laughs> or at a summer camp, there's a 200 people. So there's just noise and you have to be able to think in the noise. And it was really good for me in a classroom. And then all of a sudden I became a dad and I'm having to recultivate that. <laughs> quiet is a really special resource oh these gosh. days so <laughs> that's pretty cool that that you can do that i, I definitely can see the power being calm because if, if you're the one freaking the fuck out everyone else is gonna freak the fuck out and then before you know it's a disaster it's true uh, it's so true right like uh yeah. you know you hope to be the one that even if you haven't, you can pretend like you've seen it before. (laughs) (laughs) Fake it till you make it. (laughs) So how do you find balance? What is the things that you do to help you be your best or or to at least, to at least self care, stuff like that. What do you do? Besides jump out of airplanes. Yeah. For a while there, it, it was that, um, that worked for the first couple of years of having kids. You know, I could still take Saturdays or like, um, you know, one of our offices is in Suffolk. So I would hop from the last office check-in to get a few skydives in Friday evenings, something like that. Um, and I'm hoping actually <laughs> my container, my, my whole uh, setup is with my rigor right now getting repacked. So 2021 has a few skydives in it uh, in store. That's awesome. Um, uh, but I think the concept of self-care, you know, and, and, and being physically mindful is important. Um, used to be able to be physically fit and, um, physically prepared enough to skydive without too much effort, you know, or, and not that it wasn't without effort, but it was easy to come across the time to do so, whether it was weightlifting or running or whatever. Um, but then as, uh, you know, the requirements of 
two young growing kids adds up and, um, you know, even though Christina doesn't work, it's still, um, it's a lot for her and Mm -hmm. it's on me to make sure that I can be, you know, a substitute when she needs to go take a break and stuff. So hence again, the balance. But so after the first couple of years, um, and really it was, uh, last, it was, so it was October of 2018, um, that we really, that I personally came to looking at my physical fitness without, um, you know, much of any respect at all and something needed to change. So I started going to the gym, um, weights moved by five thirty, And if I could set that routine, that gave me an hour to lift. 15 minutes to shower and 15 minutes to get to the office by opening time at mm-hmm. seven o'clock, which, you know, again, pretty good considering a lot of bosses don't even start their day till nine. <laughs> yeah. So I get a good wow. jump on everything. Right. Um, and so that brought some of the balance back and I worked from October until like, um, February. And in February of 2019, we started talking about like, well, I'm starting to get back in shape. I'm not really losing all weight, but, you know, feeling better. Weights are getting better. You know, flexibility is increasing, that kind of stuff, you know. So I'm seeing gains, but at the same time, like, what am I really working towards? What, are we, what, what am I doing here, right? Like, I got to have, like, give me something. Needed a goal. So we started talking about the um, world record for skydiving, which would absolutely be a stretch goal for me. But it would take significant amounts of weekends away, you know, Thursday to Sunday. And that's away from family and business. Um, So that balance didn't really seem to be fair. So um, I had a lot of the triathlon gear already, and I've run a few triathlons in my past actually one of the recovery exercises that I did after my accident that we were talking about earlier was three months after that accident I set the goal of running a sprint triathlon and I did that um so triathlon has been kind of a in and out kind of thing with me for about a decade or so but when we decided that I wasn't going to go after the skydiving world record um, the triathlon Olympic distance became the next goal. Well, I blew that out of the water in like three, four weeks worth of training. Like wasn't even a big deal. So the next step beyond the Olympic is a little bit further than the step from sprint to Olympic. The next distance is the half Ironman. So sign up for the half Ironman. It got pushed till September so training through September, I hooked up with a couple of guys that are just super fun, Zach Miller and uh, Eric Olson, um, both entrepreneurs by nature and mm-hmm. good dudes. And um, so um, part of finding balance in all of this has been, you know, working towards goals at the same time of making sure that I'm around for the family. So really what that means is daddy's day starts extra early. (laughs) I can understand that. So workout started about five or five 15. Sometimes I'm up between four 30 to five o'clock. My pool times on, you know, recently off season is two times a week is, um, 6 AM, you know, start time. So I'll work for 45, 50 minutes there, uh, get a shower and then head straight into the office. But typically I'm done at the office by between two and four o'clock. 
So my work day is typically an eight hour day or so between seven and two to four. Um, so I work anywhere between like a 30 to 40 hour work week and, um, I'm home every afternoon for the kids. So balance is about sacrifice for things that you know you need to do when you need to do them. Um, one of Ben Franklin's virtues, um, is, is about exactly that. Mm -hmm. I think it's like four or five. I can't remember the exact wording for it, but do the dishes when you need to do the dishes. You know, that's my chore at the house. So probably one of the first things I'll do when I get home tonight is do the dishes, do the dishes. And I don't wait. And you know, um, I like my beers and whatever. So I'll have a cocktail or a beverage, but I'll do those goddamn dishes. You know, they will be done. Uh, and I don't fall behind on my tasks. Um, you know, when, Christina's thing is laundry. When the laundry is done, the laundry for me is put away as soon as it's set down, um, or as you know, as soon as it is reasonably possible. And um, <clears throat> those key disciplines, right? Those little things that add up to big things. Those microcosms. How you do anything is how you do everything, and mm -hmm. I think that's extraordinarily important. So probably also be important to remember what question I was answering, but I've lost track of that. <laughs> I think you've answered multiple questions uh, in, in one. So uh, it's good. We've talked for just about two hours. Holy cow. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I think um, <laughs> you've shared a lot, shared very intense and very deep things. I really appreciate you coming on like this. Do you... Um, I usually say if there's any last words, but I really feel like the way that you just ended that last response is, is perfect. That's pretty good, huh? You know, I'm good talked, with that. You talked about how you you do anything is how you do everything. Um, thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing the story. Our stories, our stories are what connect us and you know make us feel you know that we're not crazy. We're not alone. So I take it very seriously that uh, you came on and were willing to share your story and let me bring it out to everybody. So uh, thanks Stoked for coming Stoked to be on. here, man. Appreciate you tolerating yeah. my presence. Dude, it was awesome. You so. got any trash I can take out? <laughs> 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 oh, that's the way to end it. As always, guys, be excellent to each other. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Roy. Thanks, Jay. <laughs>